Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for the warm introduction and this opportunity. Good morning, church family. How y'all doing this morning? Looking good. Yes, yes, I am privileged and humbled to bring you the Lord's word this morning. Uh, For the past few weeks, Pastor Jeff has been leading us through a great series in the book of Daniel titled, She Who Is in Babylon. Y'all enjoying that series? It's been great. Great. Praise God. Now, I don't know, I don't know about anybody else, but I love the Old Testament. Anybody love the Old Testament? I love, love me some Old Testament. I love me some Leviticus. I love me some numbers, genealogies, right? But for some reason, there is a shift from Christendom to shy away from the narrative of God's grace, God's provision, God's judgment, God's prophecy, the poetry. Some pastors have even erroneously said that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. As if it's some dead weight, as if it's like a heavy backpack or something. But God knows this, and he says through Paul that all scripture, somebody say all. All All scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? complete, equipped for every good work. You see, like a a balanced nutrition of carbs, proteins, starches, and vitamins, even though we don't eat all of that, admittedly, right? But we need a healthy portion of studying all of God's word to be completely equipped to know and reflect him to the world around us. Amen? And that being said, I'm going to leave Daniel to Pastor Jeff. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to leave that to Pastor Jeff. Are you going to continue next week? But we are going to be in the Old Testament this morning. So please flip your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. Now, as you flip, as you scroll, we're going to need some context uh, regarding the portion of the text that we're going to be studying this morning. The time period is roughly 900 years before Jesus. The kingdom of Israel, 12 tribes in total, was split due to God's judgment against Solomon because they abandoned him and began to worship idols. So we have uh, two southern tribes of Benjamin and, um, and Judah to the south were called Judah, with its capital of Jerusalem with its own king. The northern tribes kept its own name of Israel, but with a new capital called Samaria with its own king. Now, our story occurs in the northern kingdom of Israel. Accompanied with each king, God appointed prophets to speak truth and guidance to God's people, especially to the king. Now, Ahab, King Ahab, had the prophet Elijah. Anybody heard of Elijah? And the stories we've, we've heard of him before, and his tenure was filled with powerful displays of God working through him to condemn the evils of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Oh, my goodness. I know we've heard that name already, especially as Christians, right? But he called often the people of God to repentance. Also, as his custom, prophets had understudies or students who also served as, uh, who also served the prophets, and these supported the ministries uh, in one way or another to carry on the same ministry that they received and they served in and through their lives. Now in chapter two, Elijah gets taken up to heaven by God in a fiery tornado or, or in a whirlwind. But before this, Elisha, his servant, asks him. He asks him for an inheritance, but not one of possessions. He asks him uh, for his spirit. He says in verse 9, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And now this is weird because for us, if I'm asking for an inheritance, I'm asking for possessions. I'm asking for things. But prophets were usually poor at this time, right? They didn't have much. John the Baptist, right, he had uh, camel's hair. That's what he wore, and he ate locusts. There's nothing much to get from that, right? But he said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah promises his servant Elisha, if you see me when I'm taken from you, the inheritance will be yours. Which means that the same power of God that worked through me will be yours if you see me be taken from you. And as they were walking along, 
talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses appeared and separated the two of them. Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, and Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, with that event, right, God has said, Yes, you will be the, the, uh, the carry-on, or you will inherit the spirit of Elijah. You will inherit the Holy Spirit. My presence that was with Elijah will be now in or on Elisha. And with subsequent private and public miracles, God cements Elisha as Elijah's successor. And he served uh, as God's prophet for King Israel, the son of Ahab. So everybody tracking with me so far? So Elisha is now the successor of Elisha. I'm sorry, Elijah. It's a little confusing. But now we are in verse 8. Everybody there? Verse 8, here we go. So now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. So the king of Aram, which is the Hebrew name for the northern neighboring nation of Syria, is at war with the northern nation of Israel. And so far, they have raided, they have pillaged, they have come really close to the capital of Samaria. Now, historically, at this time period, the king of Aram is Ben-Hadad II. Now, this title is like Pharaoh of Egypt or Caesar of Rome. The king of Israel at this time is also Joram, the son of the infamous duo Ahab and Jezebel. He was their spawn, right? He was, he, was their, he was their son. Now, we have to understand that small skirmishes, small conflicts and raidings was normal, especially at bordering nations. That's expected. But the reality of an actual war meant that crisis has come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is true for King Joram, whose responsibility it was to protect the land. And the reality of war also was a crisis for every person. It doesn't matter from the king all the way to the farmer. This crisis has hit your home. But the truth is, we don't need war to have crisis in our lives. Amen? You don't need war to have crisis in your life. From one degree to another, we may have in the past, maybe we are currently enduring it, or maybe we will experience crisis. But we do not need national conflict between one nation or another to have crisis in our lives. And there are three observations that we're going to discover throughout this story that we can apply, especially in challenging seasons of life. And the first one is that God is for you in crisis. God is for you in crisis. And two things that we can observe from this uh, that shows us that God is for us is first, he sends us wise counsel in community. He sends us wise counsel. He sends us his people in our community. You see, Elisha, the man of God, speaks the word of God to the king of Israel. The revelation didn't come directly to the king, did it? No, it came through the man of God speaking the word of God to the king. Now, the type of relationship between these two individuals isn't mentioned. But historically, um, the kings of Israel had this uncanny ability to reject the prophets. All throughout the Bible, they just completely rejected them. They did not do what God said. But here, this is different. This is different because when they rejected the prophets, it was ultimately rejecting the community by which God delivers his people. It is ultimately a rejection of God himself. Through our countless narratives in the Bible, God provides community. He provides a people in times of crisis that when received, we receive the comfort and relief that we've longed for. 
He often, God often works through the community of brothers and sisters to be the answers to our prayers, especially in times of need. And this seems to be the case here with Elisha and the king. And we can apply the same principle to our own lives. There is no such thing as a Chuck Norris Christian. There's no such thing as a John Rambo, John Wick, do it by myself, I got bad, all by myself Christian. It doesn't exist. You need people. You need brothers and sisters. We're called, we're called to cultivate biblical community throughout our lives, which will bear fruit when the time comes. When crisis comes, it will bear fruit. Solomon puts it this way, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. This tells us, right, that we experience what it means to have friends, not when good times are great. We experience what it means to have friends when they love us, not just in the great times, but at what times? All times. We experience brotherhood, right? Not when your boy calls you to go, you know, fishing, or your sister calls you to get your nails done. No, you experience brotherhood and sisterhood at 2 a.m. in the morning. Anybody check me? At 2 a.m. in the morning, there's nobody else, but I got that one person. I have a list of people to call, and the one person that picks up brotherhood. When crisis comes, God will often speak through, enable, or empower the community around us to provide the relief, comfort, and strength from him that we need to persevere through it. God will provide, and he often provides people around us and empowers them to be the means to meet the needs that we are praying and asking God for. So he sends us wise counsel and community, and secondly, he aims to build our faith through his word. He aims to build our faith through his word. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. You see, God's word came to Elisha again and again and again. The king of Israel believed God's word again and again and again, consistently saving his life, saving the life of his men, in this instance, saving his kingdom. The more the king heard God speak through Elisha, the more he obeyed and saw its benefit. And the more that we can infer, he doesn't just believe to trust Elisha, he is trusting the God who is speaking through Elisha. You see, when we press into God's word and believe what he has promised, what you're going through may change, but God plans for much more than your comfort or reprieve. He desires that you realize that he is the source of strength, that he is the source of stability. He is the source of your rest and for you to place all of your hope in him through his word. So he sends us wise counsel and community, and then he aims to build our faith through his word. What did God say? What does God say about what I'm going through? Do I believe that? So the king of Israel, knowing that God is for him in these ways, he's feeling great. This is war, crisis has come, but God is for me, and I know this, right? But not so for the uh, Aramean king, Ben-Hadad. Imagine laying out your plans for months, you're scouting, you're plotting, you're scheming, you're running intelligence operations, only for your enemy to know every single move that you're going to make. This reminded me of when I was playing basketball on Saturday with my youngest brother, and I'm coming, I'm coming off of surgery, and I'm finally getting back into the groove of things. And, you know, I did my little warm-up routine. I did my stretches. I did my, you know, um, practiced my little shooting form, dribbling. I put up my copper fit. Some people know that. If you, if you know, if anybody have a copper fit, and look, it is, a, it is a lifesaver, right? I put on my copper fit. I loosened up my joints. I made sure I drank, I drank some tea, right? I got loose. I felt good. Mentally, I felt like this guy. 
right? I felt like him. That was my image, and by the way, we look nothing alike, all right? But nonetheless, I felt like, you know what, I'm about to do some damage to these people on the court. They have no idea what is coming to them. But as I played, I played more like this guy. <laughs> That's how I played. I'm going to just be honest with y'all, right? Because we family, right? I ain't going to hold nothing, right? But the truth is, like, I prepared. I thought I was ready. These young athletes were stealing the ball from me. I was missing layups. I was causing turnovers. If you were my coach, you would have, you would have benched me immediately. Like, you're playing for the other team, brother. But it was frustrating because I felt prepared and I really wanted to help the team win. But it seemed like the opposition knew every move that I was going to make. And combat operations is miles removed from the game of basketball. But if I felt that way, let's see how the king of Aram felt in verse 11. Verse 11 says, this enraged, okay, we got it, that makes sense. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. Now we have to look at this from the king of Israel's perspective. He may not have known that this is the how of God being for him look like. The king of Israel may not have known that this is how God being for him actually looked like. And we have this privilege of seeing two things that indicate God's hands in this and why the Syrian king or the, the Aramean king was so enraged. First is the frequency of the warnings. The frequency of the warnings. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. Now the warnings were so frequent that he was guarded he was prepared. It seemed as if the Aramean king planned several surprise offensive, but was countered by a well-defended and prepared force time and time again. And this occurred so much that he knew the king of Israel, he's not that good. There's no way this king is that good. Someone is a spy. Someone is a snitch. Someone is telling my secrets or selling my secrets to the Israeli king. That's the logical explanation. But the second indicator, the accuracy, shows us clearly that God was for the king of Israel. Verse 12 says, none of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, <laughs> now, now this, this is one of those lesser to greater comparisons we often see in the Bible. If the most secure, private, and secret places in the entire kingdom, the king's bedroom, is compromised, how much more is anywhere else in the kingdom? Think about that. If the most secure, private place where only a few people can enter, the king and his queen, is compromised. How much more is everywhere in the kingdom? And as I read this, I think for me, I think the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, they got their intelligence playbook right from this, right? Let's compromise the most secure place and then let us, if, if we have that, then we have every single area. But the level of frequency and accuracy wasn't the use of a well-embedded intelligence apparatus or the employment of covert assets. It seems as if the secret and public words spoken by Ben-Hadad were spoken in such a real or very short time to the king of Israel that he had ample time to prepare a defense or outmaneuver his enemy before the enemy attacked or exploited their target. Now, how could this happen? That's completely impossible. I'll tell you. The ever-present, the all-knowing, right? God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is standing right there next to the king of Syria. And as he plotted and schemed and planned, he is simultaneously telling Elisha what the enemy is planning. And Elisha is telling him, 
This is what God is saying, and this is what you should do. That's how. The more the king of Israel believed and obeyed the word of God from Elisha, the more he was rescued, and the more his enemy became frustrated. Now, we may not see, we may not understand how God will deliver or when he will deliver or bring us relief or comfort, but we can trust his word that he is working for our good because God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied, when we are secure, when we have confidence in him. But as he is working to glorify himself through our faith in him, so is our enemy working to use our crisis to sow seeds of doubt so that, so that we can look to anyone else but God. And we must be aware, if you're in a crisis currently, we must be aware of the enemy's schemes to isolate and to sever our communion with God in the moment of crisis. And that's exactly what the king of Aram wanted to do. What this is what he desired to do for the king of Israel. I'm going to sever this connection that he has with this prophet. Verse 13 tells us, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send my men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. Now, I don't know. Ben, my brother, if Elisha knows through God's divine insight, the words spoken by God in your bedroom, the most secret place in your kingdom, let alone the war room, what sense does it make to plan with your officers, the rest of us, to send an army against him? It makes no sense. Don't you think he'd not just know, but the same God who provides the insight will protect his prophet? Now, that's just from the spiritual perspective. As a general, this tactic from the Syrian king was executed to the T. Any general would give a thumbs up, right? You would send the spies to gather and confirm intelligence. You would muster up an army and you would launch a surprise offensive to get them uh, on their heels. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast by a, uh, a veteran of one of our top tier uh, special operations group called Delta Force. And as I, as I read this story, I remember that podcast, and he said uh, one of the three ways that they engage an enemy, and these guys are cream of the crop. We use speed, surprise, and violence of action. Speed, surprise, and violence of action. That is how they engage the enemy. And I can imagine the Aramean king had these elements in mind. I want to quickly surround the city at night. I want to find out where he is. I'm going to pull up to his location. I'm going to surprise him and overwhelm him with this army. And what happens? What happens when it seems like the enemy is successful? What happens when we feel or forget that God is for us in crisis? Secondly, God is gracious in your fears. God is gracious in your fears. Verse 15 tells us, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Now, Elisha's servant is probably on his early morning prayer walk, right? He probably stepped out of his house, coffee cup in hand. No, maybe not, but... He probably was just doing his thing. He said, definitely. <laughs> right? But let's say he was, just, he was just on his morning routine, getting water from the well. It's outside the city. And behold, he sees this massive army encamped. And his response is one of grief. It's one of fear. It's one of lament. His response is both telling and appropriate. It's telling because servants of the prophet were usually the messengers that brought the words of the prophet to the intended recipients. The servant was most likely the person that assisted in sending the message from Elisha to the king. He was probably the middleman. 
So he knew exactly what this encampment all around Dothan was about. This was not necessarily a surprise to him. And thirdly, this servant was most likely new and hadn't experienced what it meant to follow a prophet, what it meant to be with a man of God. And his response is appropriate. Because seeing the entire arsenal of the uh, Aramean army well supplied to capture your master, who just probably walks everywhere. He doesn't have combat experience. He's just a man of God. It would cause anybody to fear. To put it in perspective, imagine you live on the beach early in the morning as you step outside, coffee cup in hand, because we live in the age we can have coffee, yes, Coffee cup in hand, you see an army of high-speed soldiers, fully geared-up marines and operators moving up on the beach towards your house. And if you saw that, that will cause you to fear a little bit, right? That will cause you something like, what did I do now? Did I pay my taxes? <laughs> right? Not only that, you look up on the horizon and you see fighter jets, you see bombers, you see destroyers, aircraft carriers, submarines, also moving towards the beach. I don't know about y'all, but a coffee cup in my hand will be dropped. My slippers will be flipped behind me, right? I'm racing back inside because there is reason to fear, right? Especially if you are the reason why they're coming. <laughs> if you know exactly why they're there and you are the reason you, there is reason to fear. But our response of fear to crisis can also be telling and appropriate, like Elisha's servant. We look at our circumstances. We begin to detail all the minutia, the nuances, how unfortunate our situation is. And we can subconsciously begin to magnify it. And as it grows in our minds, so does our fear. Conversely, our view of the capable and sovereign God diminishes till, we, till all we see is the crisis in front of us. And to be fair, right, while we're still on earth, no one has arrived at fullness of faith in Christ where we see Jesus in the presence of God unhindered. We're not there yet. But until then, we are all maturing and growing in our relationship with God. And by God, there are moments when we see the progress the Lord is making in our lives. And we can rejoice in that. Amen? Amen. If you see that God is growing you, where last year you weren't the same person or you didn't react the same way, and you see that that is simply because you are believing the gospel, rejoice in that. But God, hear me out, God allows crisis. It's not popular these days to think, right? But God allows crisis, just like the threat of war in our story. Uh, God allows crisis to graciously and lovingly call us to a deeper reliance on him in ways that comfort cannot. It doesn't mean that we throw our heads in the clouds and tell ourselves that crisis, whatever we're going through, is, doesn't exist, right? Or we deny our pain. That's not faith, y'all. That is not faith. Denying that what you're going through hurts, denying that what you're feeling is painful, that is not faith. Faith is, however, understanding our crisis for what it is, but ultimately seeing God for who he is. Faith is understanding our crisis for what it is, but ultimately seeing God for who he is, enthroned above every mental, physical, financial circumstance that is at your life's doorstep. As God allows the armies of Syria to surround Dothan, he unveiled the fear of the servant. The unveiling of fear in the midst of your crisis is the opportunity that God uses to deepen your faith in him. He uses that to deepen your faith in him. What did Joseph say to his brothers? What God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He didn't say God will turn it for good, right? That same situation that was meant to destroy me, your brother, God meant it for good. And in the same way, whatever you are going through today, 
The enemy may mean it for your destruction, but God means it for good. So first, you must believe that God is for you in crisis. God is gracious to you in your fears, and thirdly, God surrounds you. God surrounds you. Verse 16 says, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened these servants' eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The servant, he's probably new to the job, probably his first day, 90 day, it's his 90 day period, right? right? Was probably the messenger in some cases of Elisha to the king. Or at least he was with Elisha when the plans of the enemy were being explained time and time again. And I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing, humor me here. Let's say, for instance, he probably thought, man, this probably isn't going to end well. We are telling this Syrian king his business that happens in his bedroom to our king. This king will probably come for Elisha, and I'm his servant. Elisha needs to chill out before we get killed. He needs to stop. And I'm just hypothesizing that this is just human me, right? He probably looks at Elisha and says, why are you so calm? When he sees the army, his response is appropriate. What are we going to do? And to us today, this may sound like the cancer is back. And I'm tired of fighting. I'm a new parent, and I didn't have a parent to show me how to do this. Bills are coming, and I don't know how my family is going to make it. My spouse or my child is sick, and it's getting difficult to, to consistently take care of them. My marriage is struggling. I don't know how we're going to grow out of this. My son and my daughter just came out to me as homosexual, and I don't know how I'm going to navigate this. I'm depressed. I'm battling suicide. I'm an addict, and I feel hopeless. What am I going to do? As Elisha spoke the word of the Lord to his servant, hear the word of the Lord to you today. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Those who are with you are more than those who are with them. See, all it takes is one moment for us to see our crisis as God sees us in them, surrounded by him. In that moment for the servant, God opened his eyes to awe and to splendor, seeing the majestic army of the Lord, chariots of horse and, 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 and fire. The same fire of God that took up Elijah, Elisha's master, quenched and quelled his fear of the very tangible crisis, the Aramean army in front of them, because he saw from God's view. But that moment happened when? That happened when Elisha prayed. It was only through then, through prayer, that the Lord acted and gave the servant an ultimate reality that God surrounded the army that seemed to surround Elisha. You see, prayer, talking to God in the midst of crisis is the key. In that moment of honesty, you're bearing your heart to him. What you're going through may not change. It may not change. The Aramean army did not disappear, did it? No, it didn't. It was still there. But the servant saw. The servant saw. And we too will see the ultimate reality of God surrounding his people when we pray and not panic. We will see ultimate reality of God surrounding his people when we pray and not panic. The psalmist says it this way. Those who trust 
in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. As sure as these immovable geographical landmarks are, so does God surround you now and forever. And so are you when you trust him. For the sake of time, I'm going to just summarize the rest of this story. It wraps up with the Aramean army still attacking Elisha. God blinding the army. Elisha leading them to the king of Israel in the capital of Samaria. They receive their sight per Elisha's prayer. He is feeding them a massive feast. They eat. The enemy army <laughs> eats a feast and is sent back to King Ben-Hadad, and the Arameans subsequently stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now, as we conclude this morning, a question that probably comes to mind is, do we, as God's people, have chariots and horses of fire around us like Elisha's servant? It's nice to think, though, isn't it? It's real cool to think that, you know what, there's, a, there's an army of chariots somewhere up there, Right? You like to have been maybe the servant feeling hopeless, feeling fear, anxiety until God answers the prayer and we see for the first time. Or maybe even better, feeling confident and proud, right, and at peace, like Elisha who spiritually saw the chariots of fire before his servant did. Let me tell you something. God intends more than just chariots and horses of fire to be the way that he fulfills his promise of surrounding you. There's more than horses and chariots of fire. All the prophets and heroes of the Old Testament, including Elisha, were imperfect and lesser foreshadowings of the ultimate means to which God desires to surround us. As I thought of this phrase, being surrounded, I imagine it as, as a hug. Anybody like a hug? Anybody like hugs? Now, you may not be a hugger, but you love, I know, doggone well, you love you some hugs. You love you when someone, when your kid runs up to you and grabs onto you and holds you. Even, you, you probably remember the last time you got hugged. It was like, wow, that person is a great hugger. Right? My wife, for instance, um, we're both huggers. Um, but if I came home from the gym or working outside, Fellas, y'all know what that smell is, right? Smell like hard work. That's what I call it, right? Smell like dirt, sweaty socks, wet gym shorts. The last thing she wants from me is a hug. It's like, baby, you need to go take a shower, right? Stay away from me until you're clean. But for God to surround us, his standard for us is to be holy like he is holy. But our sin, no matter how good we are or we attempt to be, will constantly keep us from him. He tells us this and through the prophet Isaiah. He says that our good works are like filthy rags. And not just like rags that you use to put in the garage. No, blood-soaked, pus-dripping rags. That's how God sees your good works. Because they are at the core, an attempt to glorify yourself and not honor him. They're an attempt to be God instead of submit to God. And if that's how he views our good things, our good works, we can only imagine our sins, the intended rebellion, which is very deep in our nature within our hearts. So we got a problem. We have a problem. If we can't be clean enough for God to surround us, we're in a crisis greater than any that we can ever face in this life. If we cannot be clean enough for God to embrace us and God to be with us, there is no crisis that can compare to what we're going through in this life because we're in danger of receiving the rebellion of our sin, what it cries for, eternal separation from God and hell. 
That is the ultimate crisis without him. And we are in danger. All of us are in danger of that. Paul puts it this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here it comes. But God. But God. But God. Somebody say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were completely removed from him, we couldn't be near him. He made us alive together with Christ. You see, 900 years later, God's great love, his mercy and grace acted on our behalf. He sends us Jesus, his own son, infinitely greater than the prophet Elisha, to fulfill his promise. The surrounding us actually means that he intends far greater than horses of uh, of fire and chariots of fire. Where Elisha's name meant God is salvation, Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. Emmanuel, God with us. And as a band comes up, as Elisha feeds many, a hundred men with a few barley of loaves, Jesus fed 5,000 and 4,000 with loaves and fishes. As, as, as Elisha heals uh, leprosy with one man, and Jesus heals many lepers. As Elisha had authority over nature where he made an axe head float, Jesus walked on water and enabled Peter to walk on water. As Elisha was betrayed by his servant for silver, Jesus was betrayed by one of his 12 for silver. As Elisha died of sickness, Jesus laid down his life for the sin of humanity on the cross. But Elisha did not resurrect, did he? Jesus says he is the resurrection, and the life. So what does this surrounding look like? What does this surrounding by God look like in our crisis? He cleanses us with the blood of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, is in his death, takes all of our sin and pays the price. He is forsaken for us and gives us his clean and perfect record of obedience on earth so that when God the Father sees us, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. And God declares us in Christ as righteous, as holy, as blameless. In his resurrection, in his death, which was a final judgment to eternal separation from God, now through Christ becomes the doorway of access to be with God forever. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one, somebody say no one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's just Jesus. Look at the Father. Verse 29, my Father. God who is giving them to me is greater than all. No one, somebody say no one, can snatch them. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. But wait, there's more. Not only does he cleanse us with the blood of Christ to surround us, he dwells in us. God doesn't wait until that glorious day to come where we're united with him. But upon belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of God as a down payment, as a promise to be with us and to keep us. See, we don't get chariots, y'all. 
We don't get horses. We get God Almighty. We get the God who saved Elisha and his servant. We get the God who sent Jesus, his son, for us to save us from all separation from him. We get the God who sent his Holy Spirit to be with us and to keep us until we experience the fullness, the fullness of being surrounded by him for all eternity. So, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, somebody say I am convinced, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're going to celebrate that love, amen? We're going to celebrate that God surrounds us today, right now, and whatever it is that you're going through, we can lift up our praise to him because he is here, he is near, and he is for you. He is gracious to you in your fears, and he surrounds you. Amen? Amen.
you're here this morning and you don't know that God desires to surround you. You haven't put your, your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. If that's you this, this morning, you cannot experience what it means to be surrounded by God. You can't replace it with anything or anyone. No amount of success, no amount of relationships will ever compare. But He desires to surround you. God's Word says that He, he wants, He desires for all to come to repentance. And you can believe that today. You can start today. You can start your relationship with the God Almighty today. with every head bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, if that's you this morning, do something a little different, if that's you, just, just raise your hand, just lift your hands. If that's you this morning, I see that hand. I see that hand. If that's you this morning, I see that hand. Yes, Lord God. And there's no need for a Walking down the aisle, there's no need to say a specific prayer. You can just believe. Believe. Put your faith in Jesus. And let's declare that this morning. Say, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ that he died for my sins. He paid the penalty. He paid the so that I can be reconciled with God. I am a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. I am surrounded by God. I am surrounded by God, both now and forever. Let's give God praise and glory. If you're here this morning and you need prayer. Um, our prayer team will be up here. We pray that God bless you. Pray that God sustain you. Pray that God look to you and that God has make his face shine upon you and give you peace. God bless. See you next week. Yeah.